0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Cashflow Unscripted
1: with new insights from the Indian business and finance. We're a podcast coming to you from India with topical insights from leaders of the Indian business and finance community. My name is Ankur Bhagiria. I'm the founder of Cashflow. And I have with me today, Mr. Manas Datta, group CFO of Walkheart Limited, one of India's truly global pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies uh, with operations across the globe uh, in the US and Europe and in India. Manas is an experienced finance leader with more than 30 years of rich experience in corporate finance, uh, treasury, M&A, taxation uh, and in diversified businesses such as pharma, chemicals, uh, fertilizer, uh, power and even hospitality businesses. Uh, he's a cost accountant by training and an alumnus of I am Ahmedabad. Uh, Mr. Dutta is also an avid reader and loves to watch soccer. Uh, he's also an ardent fan of uh, Kishore Kumar. Uh, Mr. Dutta has been featured in Forbes India in the September 2019 issue. Manas has also been a recipient of many awards and accolades over the years, including CFO 100 for three years in a row, and named among the most influential CFOs by the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants, and many more. Uh, Mr. Dutta, uh, it's a pleasure to have you
0: on Cashflow. Um, Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. With your introduction, it looked to me that Know something very alien to me. You know, I I didn't understand that somebody can talk so many so many words for me. Thank you so much.
1: <laughs> no, my pleasure. It's it's uh it's a pleasure having you over. And uh, you know, Manas, just diving right into it. Right, um, uh, out of course, has had a tumultuous uh, journey over the last decade, um, and it's no secret. You know, from being the sixth largest pharma company in India, um, you know. Of revenues almost touching 6,000 crores uh, and then shrinking by 50% to almost 3,000 crores in 2020 uh, over the seven years. Um, when you took over as Vodkat CFO, uh, can you paint a picture of the business at the time and what was the key mandate that you had starting in? Well, of course,
0: uh, you. you... Your facts are absolutely right, Ankur, that from almost $1 billion, we have come to a little close to half a billion dollars uh, over the period. But uh, there, there is there is a, there are you know, different fundamental outlook to that, right? The perspective should be a little different. One is that during this last almost four, five years or six, seven years, the Okhar had three different buckets of strategy and one trouble. So I will talk about the trouble first so that we understand the trouble. And then we will talk about the three buckets. The trouble was of the USFT. You know, pharma happened to be one of the most, I think, conveniently placed uh, controlled industry. I will not say a regulated industry. It is a highly, highly controlled industry. So USFT related matters in three of our plants globally, including India actually created a havoc for the occurred in terms of its, you know, the molecules that we were selling across the various geographies. And particularly in US, when I started, the US was approximately 500 plus million dollars itself, our US business, right. And today, it is about 125 million dollars. So we lost more than $400 million only for the US business. So that is only because of a very limited action that we could enforce is on our quality management in India. That's a factually uh, right fact. On the other side, that's the degrowth side. On the other side, I'll be very happy to share with you that the three verticals I'm talking about, that during this last six years, Okherd became the only company in the universe, I repeat, the only company in the universe to have six new molecules in the anti-infective space. Right, which colloquially we call it as antibiotics at home. And you may or may not be aware that today we have one of the largest and most end to end antibiotic research program in the globe, right? Even probably uh, larger than uh, some of the best known multinationals on the field. And these six molecules, these are the new molecules. Let us not forget that all Indian pharmaceutical players are a generic player we have a patented trust. Now, that's the difference. Now, it is not only as an Okherdian, I, I become very proud, but also as an Indian, I become very proud that you know, without much infrastructure of R&D, that is the government, the economy, the paraphernalia of the public and private sector play, right, and the money not being allowed to be pumped in into the R&D, a small company like us, which is about 6,000 crores, could play in the world and became the only company to have six new molecules, which are in phase three clinical trial. And in the last two decades, the only company in India to launch two new antibiotics in this country, patented drugs, no more generic. So uh, when I say m or MROC O in India, it's a patented drugs. It's not like paracetamol, yeah. right? Or it's not like ibuprofen, which can be given to anybody. So it's a so that is the one side, which probably and the people who follow the Pharma well globally they know about it. On the other side, we also had looked into a possible moving out of a very very generic branded business in India, right? Which were not growing. So one side is a very highly research driven now on the other side there is a, a you know degrowing generate branded business in india which we thought that we will move out gradually get the money from the divestment and put it into our india and the third bucket bucket is during this period we actually entered almost every nooks and corners of the world so whether it is from australia to us or from latin to bangladesh we were present in every place so that is what was was very very important during this period so when you look at yes i do agree that there were troubles but on the other side some of the actions that we have taken during this last couple of years probably will take us to a different league hopefully in the next couple of quarters or maybe years i will not talk about vaccine because this is very very recent and you asked me a question that what was my mandate? My mandate was very simple. Tech occurred out of the comfort zone to a value territory. So I, don't, I, I can give you an anecdote. When I joined, I asked my chairman that, you know, look, uh, during my interview time, I, I asked him that, look, I, I don't have any pharma background uh, as a CFO. That <laughs> like, why me? I don't have it. He said, I, I want somebody to look at de novo. So from a very, very comfort zone of doing certain things in a manner which we were habitual, move into a very, very value-driven, a different kind of a territories. That was the mandate as a CFO in terms of my initial journey in Mukhar. Uh, if you have any follow-on question, we can do that. I will come back
1: to this as and when. Sure. And that's uh, fascinating, Manas. Uh, And I'm just curious. So when you took over, uh, the business was just, uh, you know, um, beginning to sort of turn around, right? Uh, There were some of these newer initiatives that were being planned at the time. What was the financial, you know, situation for Walkhard at the time? And I'm sure there would have been some immediate challenges that you would have had to grapple with on that front. Uh, Could you shed some light on, you know, what were some of the challenges from a finance
0: uh, perspective? Yes. The challenge for an Indian multinational like us and spending 14% of the top line in the R&D will be always the biggest challenge. Right? And you know that probably other than certain benefits of taxation, so-called, no Indian bank or even the multinational banks actually try to understand and get into a funding for an R&D project. And R&D is very binary, either zero or one. It's not like your plant, which can capacity of 100% can be operated at 50%. It does not work that way. So the challenge was twofold. One is that making sure that the company is liquid enough right, to get into spending more than $300 billion over a period of time right, on R&D. And we, we spent actually more than 400, almost 400 billion dollars we spent in the last couple of years, right? So, uh, including some of the capex for the plants that we have done for these patented drugs like in Dubai and so on and so forth, in Shendra in India. So, and unfortunately, Oakhart came out of the CDR uh, just before my joining and probably one of the most successful CDR in this country right, five years ahead of its original term. We were supposed to come out of in 2020. We came, sorry, 2018, and we came out in two thousand and thirty. So uh, so the challenge is that when you have a stigma of Syria, hardly any bank touches you. But raising at $300 million at that particular point of time, only for r and right? I'm very happy to share with you, you asked me a question that what are the challenges, right? To me, there are nothing called challenge. A provocation inside that everything that you face is a new opportunity. So in the last seven years or six years I have been working here, we raised more than $700 million, right? In the various forms and manners. And right now, maybe the outstanding is about $300 million right now. But we we did that. In spite of the fact that we had a little bit of trouble or a little name issue for the CDA-related matters, but we did that. So raising money, making sure that the organization structured globally in an evolving scenario of our business and evolving complexity of the taxation, particularly on the BEP side, particularly on the transfer pricing side, particularly on the various VCD guidelines side, making the company in a manner which complies to an address system. These issues were the second challenge, which we, we did. And the third challenge was making a very agile finance, mm. right? From a reporting that was driven by a human being to a more reporting and a structure of cluster rather than a cluster, a single source uh, reporting, making that we call it as, you know. Know, day two reporting, I can actually publish my accounts on the day two of every month. So globally. So that, that was the, the third challenge, making sure that the technology plays a havoc role in terms of giving the management the right kind of, not the plethora of information, right kind of information to take a call. So we became not the you know, critic of choices, we became the choices. Generally, generally the CFOs are critic of choices.
1: Yeah. And that's very interesting. In fact, on this, the last point you mentioned, Manas, uh, sort of this day two, um, you know, publishing of uh, accounts. Could you walk us through, uh, you know, that a little more detail? What, what was it that you implemented there? How did you sort of go about it?
0: Well, I have to give you an anecdote to it,
1: right? The anecdote is that
0: when I joined on my first day of my joining in Ukhart, my chairman called me on a lunch. And on the lunch table, he was saying that, look, Malaz, I need these 14 things to be done on priority. So, okay, I'm not getting into all those 14 things. Only one thing I pick it up. He said, I get my MIS. He used the word MIS, the Management Information System. Right? I hate that word, actually. Uh, do you get your MIS every day in your body? You don't. Right? But still your body works. And fabulously works. So, uh, but... He said that the MIS, I get by about 14th and 15th of the month. Can you do one thing? That you take six months, reduce one one day every month? So in six months down the line, I get it in the first week. Believe me, I told him, sir, you are very vulnerable to me. All my previous chairman would have said, I need it tomorrow. Right. You have given me six months to reduce that by six days or seven days. Right. We took actually six months. And that was, he spoke in September, 2014 when I joined. And March, sorry, first second February 2015, Mm -hmm. right? We were up and running with our day two reporting. So what does it really mean? That means that by end of the month, without changing your revenue capturing, without changing your cutoff date, without changing anything on your accrual processes, without changing anything that generally normally an accountant will do to manage its is, you know, reporting structure. You go live in and reporting, capturing everything on the 31st of the month, right? Where this is, US is 12 hours behind me, UK is five hours behind me, and Australia is six hours ahead of me. Whatever we do in the world, we tough on the respective 31st, twelve midnight. So that means for India, it is day one. And the day two, which is the day two, right? For somebody, it will be day one. Uh, We complete our financials. So be it a profit and loss account, a balance sheet, a cash flow, the business-wise analysis, the product-wise analysis, distribution parameters analysis, supply chain analysis, working capital analysis, and R&D analysis. We started with about 30-page report now. It is about 72-page report. Hopefully it is going to come down now because we are cutting down onto you know, uh, number of slides that we present. So what we did is that, Ankur is we we coincidentally we were do, we were having a single platform, single source of SAP uh, and ERP platform for quite some time in the organization. We also had a BPC, DCS running at the back end, right? We had our BI, BWs running on the back end, right? So uh, We took that opportunity and made sure that every information is captured in the BTC. And we put it into a format which is required for making this. Of course, the beautification and classification happens, of course, in a little different manner. Uh, Later on, we try to do it in some some different platforms. But nonetheless, this is what we call it. So technically speaking, on day two, I can give you my audited. account.
1: And, and how, and just for, you know, the larger audience, how is this process different from what most organizations tend to follow and where were the biggest interventions needed to get
0: to this point? Well, uh, I will not be able to say in the company where different clusters of platforms are used, right? So I will not be a right person to comment on that. Uh, my feel is like a human being, your nervous system is single source your database into the system must be also on the single source, right? Whatever ERP platform you use, right? And so this is the requirement number one. Uh, Coincidentally, we had it at that particular point of time. So it was easier for me to handle. But for a larger audience is that single source data is important. Number two is that making sure all the SOPs that one follow from the revenue recognition to Every transaction and the possibility of doing every accruals is same across the place. Your accounting and the costing, accounting MM SND masters are all same, right? So that when I so, right? So once you do that, probably at the end of the month, what you do is a consolidation process, right? Making sure your related party or contra are eliminated. Making sure your you know stock reserves are taken care, of, right? And making sure that you get the information from your FICO, from your MM, SND, and also all the other models, BPC. I'm talking, uh, or any kind of a budgetary uh, models working together, so that your product-wise profitability you get, right? Yeah. Geography-wise, profit center-wise, cost center-wise, you data you get. Uh, how to represent that will be, of course, a demand of an organisation and an evolution of an organisation. So uh, my 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 understanding. Some of my friends who actually uh, you know we were very famous uh, during in 2015 and 16, and every forum I used to go and talk about day two reporting. One of my friends has moved beyond that, but he's an Indian company. I don't want to name that, but he made it day zero reporting. That means day one reporting. But that is uh, uh, only India, so it's it's much more easier to handle. uh,
1: Interesting. Very interesting. And uh, did you have to uh, introduce new technologies to achieve this or existing technologies
0: suffice? Well, today we are trying to introduce a different technology because in the last five years, Ankur, if you know, that probably the world has moved from a database ERP, right? Data, ERP data driven reporting to a digital reporting. Now, that is a transformational process, right? So, I think that migration and transformation is happening right now. I'm not talking about the visualization of reporting, people generally make a very big mistake that you know getting a visualization of reporting and dashboarding is digitalization but i think digitalization is is a complete organizational transformation it's not it's not a just a digital uh mode right so we are moving to those some those kind of things and probably uh the erp platforms that uh, are throwing up the transactional data will now be getting into a data lake for more analytics that is happening it can be merged with the right and and have a much more benchmarking that we are we are moving but that has happened of late because those kind of activity
1: interesting and Manas going to the other point that you talked about earlier which was uh you know raising capital for a company which invests so heavily in r&d especially given the indian context Could you walk us through the challenges there and and what were some of the things that you had to do to actually uh, enable financing and and availability of capital in a scenario of that that nature?
0: Well, uh, very interesting. And it may not, uh, my words or my few sentences thereafter may not look very uh, positive to majority of the listeners. Right? Because why I'm saying that it may not uh, be looking very positive to listeners in the sense is that when you take up a challenge, the challenge means which is not in accordance with what you expect. That's the technical and dictionary form of you know, meaning of a challenge, right? So if you look at the R&D, particularly in pharma, right? And a capacity addition in pharma or in hospitals, healthcare. In India, there are hardly any structured financial models unfortunately for r d informal globally the debt oriented funds are also not available it is the venture capitalist or or maybe a private equity players. they come into the play right because who understand it but those are highly costly actions so what we decided is for sure is that that why we will be funding the, our R&D, which was in the tune of, you know, to some extent, sometime in a year, hundred billion dollars, right? Seventy to eighty million dollars. Right now, it is forty to fifty million dollars, right? So, funding a uh, 90000000 dollars year on year. If I have to get into and that to for an area which may not be that well, you know, nourished and well traveled. If I go to a private equity or venture capital, I will be losing heavily on my equity participation because there will be no valuation that can I I provide for. So probably a blue chip product or a really, really transformative product like which we did it over a period of time, which is a destination drugs we discovered. Probably we would have sold at a much cheaper, right? In terms of its intended commercialization value, right? But at that particular point of time, had I gone it, it would have been a few hundred million dollars. So we would have lost probably huge in terms of the equity participation, right? So naturally, it was a trade-off between risk that company has to take, that fund an R&D by by a debt rather than into by an equity, right? Which is a risky proposition. I do agree. But you have to balance and you have to know that are you really seriously believe in the research portfolio that you are handling? I think probably that call is not a forum to discuss here. We believed in that. And today, five years down the line, people believe it. At that time, nobody was believing So the biggest challenge here was that the Indian banks, they do not fund our aid, Most of them. That's because it is binary. They don't understand, neither they want to understand. Why? Right? So what to do? So we we did a different kinds of raising money with some with the Indian lenders, some with the global lenders and so on and so forth. But uh, we had to make sure that while we are raising money for R&D, we have an adequate FACR being offered to the people on a traditional asset based and a model of funding, right? Because the debt to EBITDA will not match in this particular case. And let us not forget that my r and spent is actually charged up to the profit and loss account. Right, so which is intended for the future benefit you are charging off majorly into the profit and loss account. So your EBITDA will be always under pressure. Like today, if I have my EBITDA is about $40 million, I'm charging $40 million of it. Uh, expenses there, so actually I'm up 80, dollars of emitter, right? But nobody will be bothered to do that, right? So rather than looking into a possibly and uh, you know equity funding, we went into debt uh, backed funding, and we did it. I'm very happy to share with you, know, During those days when we were raising money in 2015 and 16, some of our uh, rates on which which is there in our public domain. I don't want to quote anybody who is interested can go and check our balance sheets which are publicly available. And the cost of funding is also disclosed over there. Those will be matched to the best of the corporates globally and best of the corporates in this country. Whereas we are not internationally rated, right? Neither of our rating those days and neither today is very, very encouraging.
1: Because we are leveraged I'm very tempted to then ask you, what was the secret sauce? How did, how did you actually make it happen? For that,
0: for, for that probably, uh, it, it should be a different session for that. <laughs> but okay, one liner. You know, Uncle to me, is that, like I defined what is a challenge, I also defined a dream. So when we are selling our understanding to people, we also sold to our RD portfolio. Sold means I'm talking the idea of R&D portfolio, making sure that it is benchmarked to the to the world's best benchmarks and then gone to those in, to the to those lenders for making it. For that, we went to McKenzie to study our product. We went to GT to study our products, right? Valued them and showed it, or I will say, you know probably showcasing it in all the uh, uh, roadmaps that we have shown it to them, all the roadshows that we have done, telling people what we are doing. So uh, rather than selling a financial number, I told the financial world a number which is trustworthy, believable, and based on certain beliefs. So it is selling a dream rather than selling a financial number. Mm -hmm. I, I, I I will put it in this way. Uh, but people did, people did fund it, fund us and, and I'm sincerely, you know, uh, grateful to them and those, the managing directors or the CEOs of those banks, some of them have retired uh, nowadays, but I sincerely acknowledge uh, their vision. I sincerely acknowledge with a lot of gratitude that they have uh, done it based on their belief on what we have told them and it has been proved success at a later date
1: yeah i was just going to say it's the results are bearing out so yes. i think the the, the faith uh, you know is certainly getting validated Uh it's it's always fantastic to hear uh, you know stories of this nature it you know it gives a lot of hope to companies that you know otherwise would let's say tread the conventional you know toe the line in terms of you know the kind of funding that's available to them but really challenging the assumptions you know, and and like you said, uh, selling a you know a dream, uh, you know, if they r- truly believe in it, I think that's uh, that can really go a long way. And all you need is partners who believe in that dream, right? So that's the same story with equity, and in this case, that's the same story with debt as
0: well. So uh, absolutely, absolutely. And and Ankur, just I will not I will not compare and pardon me uh, for this next sentence I will be talking. I'm not comparing once again. Quote and unquote. If you really look at the success of Apple you look at the success of probably today you know uh, the the tesla what is that he also funded it both of them funded heavily by debt right initially but the question was that they believed on the product that they are going to you know deliver to the market whether it is ahead of time or not i i i, I don't know i don't want to comment but not comparing I can tell you when in Indian pharma industry, nobody thought about, you know, human recombinant DNA insulin. My company did it 20 years back, first time after they innovated in this country. Even believe that we can do it. When nobody 25 years back thought that after 25 years, the world will see the complete AMRs, antimicrobial resistance, because our antibiotics do not work anymore on the almost more than 80% of the bacteria, particularly in the, you know, some kind of pseudomonas, which is upper respiratory tract, or the lower, you know, uh, uh, I will say, you know, um, urinary tract infection, which are very, very critical. 25 years back, my chairman, Dr. Havil Krakivala could think of it. And our journey started in 1997. Our first recognition came in 2015. So 18 years of struggle actually got into there when nobody thought about it. Today, when he used to speak 15 years back about AMRs, nobody talked about it in the world. Today, even a white newspaper, not those pink newspapers, they regularly publish an AMR. If you search Google, you will find it. What is AMR? What is MRSA? And people talk about it. But he thought 15, 25, 25 years back. So I, I think that really went well in terms of the people who also believed in us. And I'm sincerely grateful for that.
1: And I think uh, if I'm being honest, Manas, I've spoken to a lot of, you know, we we speak to CFOs and finance leaders all the time. I think the, you know, what's unique about, you know, this particular story and and in your case is that, um, you know, for a CFO and finance leader to really, invest so much in understanding the business and actually believing in uh, you know, the outlook of the business almost as passionately as the founder or the CEO of any business. Uh, I think that is a lesson in itself because uh, you know, uh, a lot of finance leaders believe that, you know, they, you know, finance is the domain that they're handling and, you know, their job is sort of, you know, fiscal discipline and, you know, planning and all of that. But um being actually able to comprehend business and understand the business at a depth where you can then eventually go and sell it to investors, to your, uh, you know, lenders. I think that requires a, you know, a probably a different level of um, passion for the space and, and belief in the, you know, in the company. Uh, very commendable. I just wanted to sort of call that out.
0: Ankur, uh, thank you very much. Ankur, I would like to talk about this because you talked about it. I I, I have uh, had these kind of conversations earlier on many of my interviews uh, and people did mention but with all due with all the humbleness I must say that I have not done anything in this. Let Let me put it in this way. As a professional when we look at into a business what do we do? We talk about making a professional periphery or paraphernalia on which we need to play. It's like the referee who plays soccer, I, I, I'm a great fan of the soccer you have already talked. His one whistle stops the game or controls the game or enhances the game, right? Now, probably majority of the time finance player plays that. As an entrepreneur, you are an entrepreneur. You know that. You will be probably, I will say infinitely and endlessly optimistic. No entrepreneur can be pessimistic in life. Professionals are trained to be pessimistic. That's the problem of knowledge. And if you know that even in late 19th century, the, the famous uh, you know, German uh, German philosopher, the Kant, he talked about problem of knowledge, right? So I, I'm not correlating it, but I'm, I'm just saying, as a professional, we are trained to follow certain guidelines. As an entrepreneur, there are no schools. Nobody went to a school and become a Dhirubhai Ambani or Ratan Tata or anything, right? They became, that's because they are an entrepreneur. So as a finance professional, I think we have been trained over the period to be the, like the way I talked about, a critic of choices, making sure that the strategic platform is adequately compensated with all the paraphernalia of restrictions and constraints that we put in, right? We did that. If you ask me that question, I will answer that. That is very, very important. Had I not done it, probably I would have not sold the dream. If you don't have your bicep, you will not be able to even work. So those paraphernalias are those biceps and triceps. But to be be very, very candid on this is that, you know, very importantly, a CFO must also understand the value side of the game. And I have coined a word, this is my quotation, and this is a, a registered trademark of mine, that the CFOs are not your strategic partners. They are, in my point, is an economic guardian. So uh, I, I spoke about in various forums, we can speak at a later date, but an economic guardian cannot hold hands or cannot link, cannot only support, but also guide so uh, it's, it's very, very important, but we will talk about that while selling the dream, how the paraphernalia of the structure of making sure that the compliance is happening, if you remember, my second point was evolving complexity of the business and taxation and the compliance is how we manage. That was the second challenge that we we did. That is very, very important. We, we did that also. And based on that, people thought like we moved out of uh, uh, a traditional accounting form of Uh, auditing to a big four auditing. We moved out of a homegrown internal audit and risk management practices to a big four risk management and risk assurance practices globally after my joining, right? So we did that. People also felt that there is an assurance backup, right? There is a benchmarking backup and there is a paraphernalia. I use that word quite frequently of our MIS structured programs. So unless otherwise you all have that your dream is a bodiless uh, daydreaming probably. It's not bad, but it's it's not good yet. Sorry, yeah. Ankur, I, I took a little more time on that.
1: No, no. I think uh, the, the, you know, the analogy of economic guardian
0: uh,
1: versus a strategic partner is an interesting one. I think uh, the st- CFO being a strategic partner is often um, loosely used, in, you know, in, in, in the business world. So, um, you know, I'm sure you have a lot more thoughts on that, but if you had to just take a couple of minutes on elaborating a little more on when you say economic guardian versus a strategic partner, uh, what is it that you have in mind and, and why is it that a finance leader cannot be a strategic partner in the truest sense of the word?
0: You see, probably, uh, until, uh, it's a little uh, little a detailed discussion. I will take two three minutes on this. Uh, and try to whatever best I can compress upon on this. Uh, If you really look at, when you go to a doctor, what do you do? You say truth. Because your expectation is that he will treat you, he or she will treat you well. So you never hide something. But unfortunately, the training of a doctor is to hide. Because doctor is supposed to, they have taken an oath that they will never ever share the medical history of his or her patient. Now, which one is the correct one? There's a dichotomy, correct? He was saying the truth, but he will never say it to anybody else. But both, the intention is to make sure that they merge together and making sure a right decision making platform. CFOs unfortunately were trained to either do a compliance or do a reporting or become a business partner, I hate this word. Why I need to be a business partner, I do not understand. Because there is nothing called a business partner. Right? I will talk about it. Or a strategic partner. So this is probably in 70s and 80s that you are a bookkeeper, data manager, compliance, and compliance complexity uh, grew over the period of time. So that technically, the demand for CFOs forever and not only in India, probably more in the outside India because of their compliance orientation was to make sure that you create an environment of compliance and making sure things are there, maybe hidden. I'm not meaning it, the hidden in any wrong manner, but hidden in the manner the doctor writes. That's what I put that analogy, right? So, but when the gradually the different changes happened in India, particularly, and also in the world, like IFR is in, the accounting standards kept changing, the tax rules kept on changing. The listing agreements globally started changing because of the the as a CFO, one has a pretty unique opportunity to play as a chief ambassador. That means the person is actually you know, communicating with or representing the company with the regulators, with the stakeholders, with the board of directors, with the, with the investors, with everybody, lenders, rating agency, analysts, everyone. So he, he or she is the very key connect or ambassador or representative of, the country, of, of, the, of, of her company. Point number two is a chief information architect. And why I say it's a chief information architect is that it's not an information gatherer or catcher. It's an architect beautifies the information right and number three you are the probably the chief business valuer because you know what your business guys are talking about and you know what the expectations of the investors or lenders or the you know the supplier of capital so you have to map between the two. so if that is needs to be done one has to come out of those accounting taxation you know the treasury and the mundane actions of fPNA uh, a r ap and so on and so forth to a typical value zone which i call it as value territory whereby you are selling the dream and while doing that i call it as an economic guardian it's like our mother she held our hand when we started walking but she held our hand till the time we needed it after that she left it otherwise we would have we would have been taking her as Bashati rather than something else right so, a guardianship is a bigger role than probably a partner. Partner is a very limited, obsolete word that I believe, where there is a vested interest. But as a guardian, your vest- there is no vested interest. You know where the values are, and that values can be ethical practices, values can be governance, values can be bringing in the right kind of framework, bringing in right kind of an investor, lender, atmosphere, uh, you know, your supporter, your consultants, your auditors. Everybody together in, a, in a, an overall hemisphere whereby you have a similar kind of a climate where you can work together. That is what I call it as, as an economic guardian. And probably I expect the CFOs now onwards to play more on that rather than what was trained and expected to be uh, in the past.
1: Uh, very fascinating. I think that's, that's a great way to summarize uh, you know the role of a CFO in today's times. You know, finance professionals, uh, you know, as they grow through the ladder, are they getting the right kind of exposure to be able to play this role in the long run? And, uh, you know, what is it that young professionals can do, uh, you know, in order to groom themselves for playing this role out in the future?
0: Well, uh, there is a both question, answer to this question both is yes as well as no, but more towards the yes, but 30 to 40% still no. The reasons are, is that tradition, whether it is an entrepreneur-driven organizations like you, who are very young, new generation, new thought process, or a very old generation organization that I belong to, or some of the other corporates are, which are 50, 100 years old, both places, there is an expectation from CFO. So, call CFO means you need an information, or you have to tackle a problem. That problem can be tax, problem can be funding. That is somewhere something there is problem. Now, that is an expectation of the management from the CEO to the CFO. Probably that needs a change and that change cannot happen unidirectionally. Both have to play that role. So my understanding is that still CFOs and finance functions in 90% of the organization is treated as a service function. But I can tell you, Uncle, the day the organization feels that the finance is not a service function or a support function, there will be a complete change of the organization. Mm-hmm. Like HR, if somebody feels it is a function of a, a service or a support, I pity to that organization, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's not, it's one of the most critical function. If I'm the CEO, I will every time call my chief HR officer and the CFO for every, my decision-making. I will never ever ignore them for anything that I do, right? But, so this is one side. On the other side, there is a little bit of dichotomy from the CFOs also. Because of being their KMPs and they are restricted and restrained by quite amount of laws, uh, right? Whereby they have personal obligations like independent directors and so on and so forth. It makes things like a referee of a very, you know, Brazil and Argentina match or Argentina and and, and a Germany match, you know, he will be first and foremost will come with a negativity. That kisi condition it should not go out of hand. It is unfortunate, but the best of the referees, if you have seen, they played the best matches. They ensure the matches are most competitive without getting dirty. That is a unique thing of a referee. I always watch that forty-five-year-old man, and for ninety minutes, you know, traveling from this goalpost to the another goalpost, whereas the majority of the players are not running for ninety minutes, but this fellow is running at the age of forty-five plus. Others are running twenties. Unique opportunity. So, as a CEO or as a CFO at forty-five, I will say that one has to run quite a bit. Never blow a whistle unnecessarily. And never also stop a whistle blowing when things are very bad or needs to be stopped. So it's it's a very 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 clear. But unfortunately, it comes with a little bit of negativity at the beginning because that's the demand of the law or yeah. the or the structure in which we work. Yeah. It is unfortunate, but that's the way it is.
1: No, very well put. Uh, I really like the analogy of the referee. I think it's very well put. Um, Manas, just uh, you know, shifting gears before we wrap up. Uh, you know, I wanted to um, reflect on the last six to nine months. Uh, every organization, every industry has gone through a tumultuous phase. Um, curious to know what's been your experience uh, while at Walkhard uh, during the pandemic, and and what were some of the biggest challenges, especially you know, on the supply chain front, given the kind of disruption that we saw in the in the economy. Uh, what were some of the challenges that your organization faced and your supply chains faced and um, yeah, any insights, any learnings from that? We
0: like any other industry, we did face a lot of trouble, but a uh, good part is that we being into an essential company, right? essential services, we came faster. Yeah. Our plants were also allowed to operate faster by first week of April, whereas the majority of the plants were stopped, right? So the supply chain, particularly, uh, I will say for initial one month, there was a real trouble and the supplies from China and all for the APIs still remained a trouble. But uh, like I told you that the challenge is probably the biggest uh, motherhood of innovation. So uh, I think majority of us played quite well, right? Uh, In terms of getting alternate resources, getting into uh, alternate sources of materials faster, though it is a, you know that it's a highly regulated industry. You can't even change your, you know, the, the packaging, right? Can't even, even the can't change the tertiary packaging, right? There are also a lot of rules and regulations. So uh, I felt that probably the first one month of the lockdown, so in the month of April, it was tough. Thereafter, it came back. What I have seen is that probably there is a delay in supply, but there is no stoppage in supply right financing was not a problem during this phase at least for us and probably the suppliers both small and medium segment industries that are very you know key associate of our success stories uh, which occurred globally we felt that they also supported us sometimes payments were delayed but they also supported because their payments were also delayed the cycle of probably 30 days credit went to 90 days credit or 90 days credit went to 120 days credit, but it is on the every phase. One part I think I picked it up during this period is very important is that probably all of us must is that this pandemic has given us a unique opportunity to look at a zero working capital level, right? And, and that is what I think we should all take that benefit it's not just in time working capital I'm talking about. I'm saying that if I have an inventory at the right place at the right time, probably I can sell off the inventory at the right moment. Right? So uh, going back from the demand phase to the demand planning and the production plan probably can be really re-looked into much more digitally and much more innovatively into the system. And also for the supply chain finance, particularly on the, on the creditors' funding, I think there are a lot of innovation that I could, I could see. And it's very encouraging. And, and believe me, I love doing this period because nobody came up and said, what happened? Because everybody, nobody could blame each other, which is the much more yeah. general used to happen because it was given by something which all of us had no control. So that was a very good part, right? It's like rain, you know, it's rain happening, happening. You can't help it, right? So I think that way, since there were no enemy opposite to us, we started looking after each and each one of us as more as a friendly gesture, and that is there. Uh, But I will say that we did not face much trouble in terms of the supply chain barring the initial few weeks. Yeah. Interesting.
1: Do you see the uh, you know, supply chains getting back to normal anytime in the near future? My feel, it is completely
0: normal. Now. And my feel is that uh, it, will, it will remain normal. The pandemic will not stop, right? If you really look at the various epidemics that we have seen, not in this kind of a level, uh, but it created havoc. You know, uh, even a, a volcanic eruption in the northern hemisphere created about some time back, about three, four years back, you know, that the complete flight zones were altered and so on and so forth. But uh, I'm, I'm very optimistic that this pandemic had given us a lot of opportunity, right, and uh, not only in the pharma and healthcare, but, uh, uh, but in major and major, major league. I'm I'm feeling feel feeling a little bad about my previous industry where I used to work on the travel and tourism and luxury hospitality. I think they really got the burnt of this thing, but hopefully that will come back. Yeah. I'm told that the hotels are uh, still booked more than 40% during this season. I'm very really <laughs> happy to happy to hear that. It yeah. also shows a uh, economic calm, not yeah. to nothing to do with personality.
1: Yeah. Just one question on the supply chain front. Do you believe that the supply chain structures will fundamentally change, especially, you know, sourcing from China, for instance, Uh, you know, there has been a lot of talk and a lot of, over the last couple of years anyway, there has been, you know, initiatives towards, um, you know, sourcing domestically. Do you see that trend accelerating
0: now, especially in pharma? Well, I will uh, go back on this uh, a little bit of point. You know, about twenty years back, India used to deliver more than for fifty percent of world's API. Like today, eighty-five percent of the vaccinations in in the world is supplied by us, right? More than thirty percent of the product is supplied by us, right? Globally, uh, I'm talking of pharma. So, if Somebody goes back to the supply chain theory and saying, I will will be Atmanirva, please do not take me wrong with the BJP propaganda or the government of India, self-reliance, that I will manufacture everything on my own and not to depend on China or anybody else. I think that will be too childish because most important part in a business is to add value. Right. The person who brings a water from a tube oil has no value. But when it is bottled in avian and then it is it is priced at five dollars, the value is different. Right. So I think we should be in India particularly. And when we know that our majority of this country can have a huge amount of benefit on export and can be a very big supply to the world, we should look at only the value adds. So rather than selling a tire, we can sell a car. It is a much more valuable. Rather than selling an API, I can sell a formulation. It is much more valuable for the company, for the country, and even I will say global platform. You have a reliable source in that particular case and play with that, with the, with the, with the human evolution. Uh, So I will not go by the concept that everything needs to be uh, done by us. Uh, Had it been done, then swiggies and zomatos would have not been there in the world uh, during this pandemic because we never run our kitchen, right? Because the cooks were not there. So uh, we were dependent on somebody else. That is the value add we need. Uh, And I will sincerely believe or try to believe uh, that particularly in pharma, we must focus on value-added products in India rather than manufacturing API.
1: No, got it. I think that's uh, yeah, that's very insightful, Manas. Thank you so much. Uh, look, I think that's uh, you know pretty much uh, all that I had uh, you know for this episode of Casual Unscripted. Um, I think we traversed a variety of topics over the course of the last hour or so. Uh, thank you so much, Manas. I think this was truly a very, very uh, insightful conversation. Um, this has been great, um, and and uh, you know we hope to have you back on the show soon again. But for now, uh, you know th- that's all from all of us here on the on this episode of scripted. Unscripted. Uh, thanks everyone for listening in. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, uh, do consider subscribing to us on sub- on Spotify or Apple, so we can gently remind you when our next episode is out. Uh, If you also want us to add us to your mailing list or you're you're interested in joining us on the show, uh, do let us know. Uh, Stay safe. uh, Have a good day and talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Manas. Uh,
0: It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. And it's indeed nice meeting you on this podcast. Thank you so much. Hope to see you soon. Stay safe.